I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to look um, at the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we will be reading from verses 1 through 12. Roger has basically just preached the sermon. And I'd love to say that, well, because he did, we can just move forward, but we all know that's not going to happen. But in, in, in reality, it is amazing how often and how frequently the prayers that are prepared by our elders, independent of, of discussions with me, how often the Lord le- leads them to pray in accordance with what's going to that he's going to say through the word. And, and so uh, please keep what, what you heard uh, in that prayer. Uh, keep that in your hearts and minds as we read uh, from Matthew chapter 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for revealing self to us. Not only what you have revealed in creation, in the world around us, what we see uh, in, in uh, people uh, and, and in the relationships that exist within this world, but that there is something that even transcends those things and gives what is needed for understanding purpose, what is needed for understanding what you are living for and therefore what we are to live for as those united to you in Jesus Christ. And so speak to us, Lord, this morning once again and help us to have ears that want to hear what you say, that we may indeed experience more and more what we already possess in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many of us are often affected by different things that we're not really aware of. Sometimes it is just influences from the past or specific teachings with regards to, um, to, to uh, the big picture of life, what is meaning, 
What is purpose? Where do we find the good life? Those living in modern Western civilization have been affected in this very specific question by a man that many of you have never heard of, and even among those who have, probably have not read him. But the way that most Americans, especially American Christians, approach this question of meaning and purpose and the good life has been shaped and formed by a man named Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant was a German or technically Prussian philosopher uh, from the 19th century, and one of the areas in which he wrote was in the areas of morality, virtue, and ethics, like every other philosopher. And one of the things that he taught is referred to as the categorical imperative. Now, if you never remember that, you're going to be totally okay. But what he taught with that categorical imperative is this idea. The reason that you behave morally, the reason that you um, embody virtue, the reason is because it is the right thing to do. And it is your duty to do so. In an episode of Friends, and I am not recommending anybody watch that, watch that show, but in an episode of Friends, they actually illustrate so well the teachings of Kant and his categorical imperative and how, what that can look like in everyday life. In the episode, one of the storylines of the episode is uh, Phoebe, um, uh, the, one of the, the characters, is, is talking with, and I don't even remember who the male character is, but it's one of the male characters, and uh, was talking about how he had either given something or done something for a charity, and how he had enjoyed it. And she challenged him and said, well, you know, You're not supposed to do charity because of what you get out of it. You're supposed to do charity for the other person. And the whole rest of the episode is is this conversation between the two of them where he can somehow prove to her that he does something for someone else and doesn't get anything out of it. Because that is what makes the charitable act meaningful. That's what gives it value. That's why someone is, should pursue developing the type of moral character and virtue that allows you to do something for someone else without getting anything out of it one bit whatsoever. That is what true ethical living looks like. You do your duty because it's correct and don't try to get anything from it. Now, here's the problem for us. That is categorically and completely the 
opposite of what Scripture teaches regarding the development of moral formation, the development of the virtuous life, and how that expresses itself ethically in the pursuit of the good life. What God has told us is that He is beautiful and good and true. And that if you want to enjoy life, it will only come as you are rightly related to Him and enjoying Him. God does not tell us is that if we want to experience the good life, then the good life is defined in terms of doing the right thing and not wanting to get anything out of it. He tells us the opposite. Because of all that I am and all that I have given you and all that you now are in Jesus Christ with the fullness of the inheritance of the saints in light that is incomparable, Because of that, learn to become and to do what I already count you to be in Jesus Christ. To put it another way, one, God wants us to pursue living the good life. Now, last week, I challenged you at the end of the service to read through the Sermon on the Mount this week, to read through it once a day. Doesn't take very long, just a few chapters here. And as you read it, write down all the places that make you chafe. Jesus is the one who is superior to Moses. He is the one greater than Moses who has come to reveal a greater revelation of who God is as He is not just the mouthpiece of God. He is God speaking through a human mouth. That He is God in the flesh revealing who God is and what God wants and and what God is doing in order that we might be related to God in such a way that we are able to glorify and enjoy Him. That we are able to treasure Him and delight in Him. He has made us to find the satisfaction of the deepest longings of our hearts in Him. He has not made us, less as the other religions of the ancient Near East taught. The other religions taught that the only person who was created in the image of the god or the goddess was the king. And everyone else was created to be a slave to do the work that the god or goddess didn't really want to do. The god or the goddess was presented as wanting to have fun and wanting to to just enjoy being a god, didn't want to have to actually do any of the, the work, and so they made slaves. And those slaves were the ones that were supposed to do all the work so that the gods got to enjoy being the god. What Christianity has taught, what God has revealed through the scriptures, is the exact opposite. He has made 
those whom he wants as children in order that as he does his work, his children enjoy him and they participate along with him in what he is doing. Jesus is the embodiment of this revelation of God. If if you want to know what is God like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what does God want, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is requiring, you look to Jesus. If you want to know what is God doing, you look to Jesus. If you want to know what is God providing, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of of God and his revelation to his people and to the world for the purpose of glorifying and enjoying him. As Jesus said in John 10, I have come to give you abundant life. Now, one of the first places that I chafe When I read the Sermon on the Mount, is that the very notion that I am supposed to live for blessing. I am a good reformed Christian. I know my duty. And I know what I'm supposed to do and not do. And the joy that I'm supposed to get is simply from doing or not doing that. It is those health, those, uh, <laughs> health, wealth, and prosperity Christians that use God as a cosmic bellhop in pursuing Him for what He gives. It is those, those charismatics and those others who, who want to, uh, who dismiss the seriousness of what it means to follow God, who, who, who only seem to want to, to follow God because they get something from Him. They're the ones that pursue, you know, living the good life because of what you get from it. No, 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 no. What God wants for us is for us to to white-knuckle our way through obedience for the sake of obedience because what should make me happy is the fact that I've done the right thing for the right thing's purpose. And I have to watch out that I don't participate in the abuse of God by treating him like a cosmic bellhop who exists to fulfill my wishes. And the thing is, that is correct. He is not a cosmic bellhop who exists to fulfill my wishes. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is one thing to desire to protect myself against an abuse against God. It's one thing to to desire that. It's another thing to create a fence that he hasn't created that actually keeps me from fulfilling the purpose that he has for me. It is so easy for us to want to protect against the abuse of God that we as Reformed Christians often do not actually follow God out of the enjoyment that he wants us to experience. We often do not follow Christ because of the abundant life 
that he has purchased for us in order for us to actually experience abundant life. We, we are so scared of those things sometimes. We like to, to back away and we want to protect ourselves and we create this fence. And it's like, no, no, I do my duty because it's the right thing to do. And what most of us don't realize is that we are Kantian rather than Christian. Jesus here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with the good life. He begins this sermon as he now in fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 2 and and Micah chapter 4, where we are told that in the latter days the Messiah would come and he would ascend the mountain of the Lord in order to reveal the heavenly realities of God that that would be not only just for for those who were uh, from the Jewish nation, but those from every nation throughout the world, as he would reveal what was needed to receive the blessing that God has. And Jesus now here, as he ascends the mountain in the latter days, is now revealing the good life and the right way to enjoy it, the right way to pursue it. But it all hinges on the fact that Jesus who has come in order to give abundant life, is now teaching, is assuming that wanting abundant life and experiencing abundant life is godly, is holy, is what forms and shapes us as God's people. Not duty that is done for the sake of it being right. Now, do we do that? Do we follow God's word because it is right? Absolutely. But that is not the purpose for doing so. Jesus lays out for us these nine statements that are descriptive statements of what does the good life look like in a fallen world? And how does it anticipate the good life in the perfect world that is to come? But make no mistake, what he's laying before us here is living the good life. Now, it is very easy for us to misread these statements and to think that what Jesus is doing here is saying, hey, do you want to experience the good life? Then here's what you got to do. That would be prescriptive. But instead, what Jesus does is he gives a description of the good life. In other words, what Jesus is doing is describing for us not what we are to be to enjoy the good life, not what we are to do to enjoy the good life, but what he starts with is here's what you already possess if you are one of my followers. What you already possess by being in Christ 
is you already possess the abundant life that Jesus has come to secure and to give away as a free gift. He, just, he starts with a description of the good life that you and I already possess. And then the rest of the sermon is teaching us how, teaching us how to grow and mature into more and more of what we already are and how we grow in terms of uh, living out who we are so that we come to taste more and more the good life that we already possess. But we start with the descriptions so that from the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus rightly orients us that the good life is assumed and the good life is something you already possess. From the start of this gospel, Jesus has been revealed by Matthew in so many different fulfillments of Old Testament promise an expectation to present to us the big picture that with the coming of Messiah, the new exodus that was promised and, and that was supposed to be desired, the, the one to lead the new exodus has come. And, and what he has come to do as the leader of the new exodus, as he is the one who is greater than Moses, revealing the, 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 the superior realities of the new covenant, what, what Jesus has come to do is he has come to deal very specifically with two things that keep us from the good life. And the first is guilt. We are guilty before the Lord because of our sin. And it is the guilt that we have for sin that keeps us from enjoying the good life. And so Jesus is described as the one who has come to deal with guilt. And this is described for us in his baptism. As he enters the baptismal waters to fulfill all righteousness, it's not because he needs righteousness. It's not because he needs to be cleansed from sin. It's not that he's done anything that would require any of that, but he is identifying himself with his sinful people who are guilty before his heavenly father. And the, the baptism that he receives in terms of water, he then later fulfills... When he goes to the cross and he describes his death on the cross as the baptism with which he came to be baptized. He has come to free his people from bondage. In the Old Testament, God's people were enslaved to uh, to Egypt, they were they were they were slaves there uh, to another people and to uh, and to another nation. What Jesus has come to do is free us from the bondage of sin, 
the power of sin. He has come to free us from the, the power of temptation and the devil himself. And so after his baptism, he then goes into the wilderness and he overcomes the temptations of Satan there. And for the rest of his earthly ministry, he constantly overcomes one temptation after another, bringing victory that would be a victory not only where he would live in the freedom of bondage to sin and live in the freedom of temptation itself, but it would be something that would be imputed to us as his people, where his victory becomes our victory so that our guilt before the Father is taken care of and, and our bondage to sin and death and to the devil is taken care of and we are freed up from God's judgment. We are freed up from the power of sin and we are freed in all of this stuff and it is the freedom itself which is the good life. It is what we already possess because we are found to be in Christ by faith and what is his is now ours. The good life is assumed. But if you want to learn how to enjoy that good life, how to mature and how to grow so that your character, your moral virtue comes to express more and more the good life of who Jesus is and what he has done, then you're going to read the sermon in order to let Jesus speak to you afresh so that he can take his heavenly revelation and start reforming you and reshaping you. As the sin whose penalty has been paid, and as the sin whose power has been broken is get, gets reshaped and reformed so that you come to exhibit more and more what God counts you to be in Jesus. And if you want to grow in the enjoyment of this good life, not only will he reform us and remake us into his image in terms of our moral virtue, he is going to reshape us and reform us in our behaviors and our actions. But make no mistake, what the Sermon on the Mount is putting before us is what every philosopher and what every people group has attempted to describe from the beginning of creation. And where it is so easy for us to think that what God wants of us is not to care about the good life or to be tempted to think that, that my faith is about duty to God, and if I'm going to experience the good life, it will come from somewhere else. And one of the biggest temptations that you and I have, as Roger prayed for us, is we think the good life is going to come as a result of politics and governance. It gets so easy to think that if the politicians will just do the right thing, if government will just pass the right laws, if, if we can just set up the right external circumstances, that that will be the way that I experience the good life. And when they don't, 
or when they pass laws that keep me from experiencing the good, law, the good life, we think that we are now losing something because of their actions. And so it's so easy to put us in the, into a perspective of fear. It's so easy to put us into a perspective of complaining. I mean, this is me. I don't, maybe it's just me and Roger. I know it's Roger. No. It, it might, I don't know. Maybe it's just us. But, oh, man, I am so sophisticated in my whining that I can make it sound righteous. But it's not. It's me out of fear and selfishness whining because I have separated the good life from the one who has bought and given the abundant life. And beloved, there is no law that can be passed by any man that can change, alter, minimize, or reverse what Jesus Christ has accomplished in freeing you from guilt and freeing you from the power of sin. Nothing. Nothing. The good life has been purchased for you and it has been gifted to you. And we are to want the good life. But we don't want to separate the good life from the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. And so as Roger prayed, as we, as we will work through this sermon, what, what Jesus does in, in order to to reform our moral imagination that leads to true Christian flourishing, as Jesus does this through his word and through his sacrament and through the prayers and fellowship of the church, as, as Jesus does this, what God will constantly set before us is not just his law, that tells us what to do, he sets before us the beauty of creation as Roger prayed. He sets before us beauty. Yes, Reformed Christians. Beauty. Not just law and duty. Not just duty, but beauty. I hadn't thought about that before. Let me chuckle to myself for a second. He sets before us the grandeur of who he is. He sets before us, as we saw time and time again in Ecclesiastes, he sets good food before us. He sets tasty wine before us. He gives us relationships where we get to uh, experience loving someone and being loved by them. He gives us purpose and a vocational life in which we get up in the morning for a reason and we embody the, the different gifts that God has given us so that in the use of our time, our treasures, and our talents, they are used in order to reveal how great God is as, as we live as his people in these concrete ways. 
But you and I live in a world that has fallen. We live in a culture that is fallen. We live in a community that is fallen. You and I live in a church that is still fallen. And so living out and experiencing the good life that we have already been given is going to be hard. It is going to be difficult. And where you and I are so easily influenced by the philosophies of the world, even when we don't even know that I'm Kantian, what Jesus is going to do is challenge us not simply to make us chafe, but in order to knock off the things that get in the way of enjoying what we have already been given. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to use profoundly countercultural realities, not just with regards to, to the the world and what it values and how those values have, have formed and shaped us in ways that we're, that we're not even aware, but in the culture, the countercultural um, gospel realities that the only way to exaltation is through humiliation. The only way to be raised to new life is to first die. The only way to experience glory is through suffering. The only way to enjoy the coming fullness as those made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in the heavenlies is to take up our cross to follow him. What does it mean to experience the good life within this life, it's going to involve being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, being hungry and thirsty, being merciful. Ooh, the church doesn't like that one. We want to be powerful. We want to wield politics. To be pure in heart to be peacemakers, to be persecuted. These are the ways that you and I will experience the good life because the good life is found in one place and that is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, as he is the embodiment of the blessings that are described in the Beatitudes, himself was one who learned obedience as a son through his suffering and who died and who was raised again. And the path that is our Savior's is the path of all who are united to him by faith and who have been designed and made now in Christ to enjoy the good life that here and now is going to be difficult yet fulfilling as we look for the fulfillment of the new exodus when we arrive in the new heavens and the new earth where the penalty for sin is still paid, the power of sin is still broken, but the presence of sin is eradicated forevermore.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed form and shape us in the image of Christ and that you would convince us, Lord, that your heart's desire for what you are doing in and through us in Christ is that we treasure and enjoy you. That we know you. That we have a relationship with you. That we share in the, li- in the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we share in the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we, show, we share in the purposes and mission of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, reveal to us the ways that we get uncomfortable in connecting our devotion to you as an expression of and as a greater enjoyment of the law that you have fulfilled in Christ. Convince us, Lord, that we are not only to believe that you exist, but that you reward those who seek you. And Lord, convince us that the enjoyment that you have for us is not in getting something from you that we don't already have, but learning how to remove the hindrances to our enjoying eternal things because of choosing finite things over them. Lord, use your word in our lives and use the sacrament that is before us to do this. Reform us, reshape us in the deepest desires of our longings, in the values and virtues of what we express in embodied living, and how we extend around the world the blessings that you have procured in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.